As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Paul Sweeney. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. You do a book, and like that's okay, that's a big deal. But then if you do a second book on the same topic, you're like an authority. He is an authority. Thomas Orlick has out Understanding China's Economic Indicators. It's a good book to doze off to, but when you're done with that, you can wake up with China, the bubble that never pops. It is now the required read as the bubble pops. China, the bubble that never pops. Joining us on Thomas Orlick, driving all of our economics as well. Did you ever think, Tom Orlick, it would get as bad as it is now where basically the president of the United States, President Xi of China, has to directly intervene to put a bid under equities. Was that imaginable two years ago or 20 years ago? The Chinese stock market's a strange beast, Tom. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind a couple of things. Uh, The first is that there's a signal there. The fact that China's stocks are amongst the worst performing in the world this year is a gauge of the weakness in China's economy. Um, at the same time, it's important to remember that China's stock market, whilst kind of symbolic of the economy, is not the economy. There's not a lot of household wealth in the stock market. Right. Businesses aren't raising a lot of capital by issuing shares. So yes, this is scary. Yes, right. this is a bad sign. Yes, this is why Xi Jinping himself, we hear, is planning to intervene. Um, but it's not right. quite the catastrophe for China that it would be if in the United States okay. the S&P 500 was down so much. Right now, we're clearing a market in New York City. It's called office towers. And, you know, we have a whole process, bankruptcy or transactions, whatever, to clear. They don't have that structure. How does a totalitarian regime clear a distressed market? So it's a really interesting question, Tom. Um, and actually, I, I don't want to sound too kind of Pollyanna everything's fine about this. Um, But part of the problem here, part of the short-term pain, is that China is moving to get rid of that problem of moral hazard, get rid of that problem that investors believe that the government, in the final analysis, will stand behind all the banks, stand behind all the real estate developers, and prevent them from failing. It's the removal of that implicit guarantee, which is actually one of the big causes of stress and pain in China's market and economy right now. Um, But when they get through the end of it, and it's going to be a long process, we think the property correction still has a couple more years to run. 
an economy and markets without such a severe moral hazard problem, well, hopefully it will be an economy and a market which is primed to grow and rise again. Hey, Tom, I know President Xi and other Chinese leaders over the last six months or so have been courting Western investors, Western countries, uh, kind of arguing about or supporting the investment thesis for China. But there are a lot of investors, not just EM investors, who are saying China is uninvestable because of the China risk, the government risk. Do you sense that is, is a, that the government of China understands that and that they're willing to make any types of changes to be more receptive to Western investment? So the China investment story has got, I think, three really big problems. Um, the first big problem is that we've gone from an economy which in nominal dollar terms was growing about 20% a year to an economy which in nominal dollar terms isn't growing at all. Um, that's significant negative for investors. Um, the second is relations with the United States. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you put your money in China, there wasn't that geopolitical risk. Now there's the risk of tariffs, the risk of sanctions, the risk of political blowback. The third challenge, as you mentioned, Paul, is that investors now believe that Beijing doesn't have their back, right? Um, and I think it's that piece of it which Xi and his premier uh, and other members of China's leadership are now trying to row back from. The trouble is those other two negatives, falling growth, increased geopolitical stress, they're still there. And that means the mood music remains pretty, uh, pretty challenging. And what's the expectation, Tom? I, I kind of think about, I guess, what's the expectation that this Chinese economy can fundamentally turn itself around? I think of, you know, just the demographics of China just don't bode well for the economy longer term. And I'm wondering, you know, what can the government do to really turn this economy around? So when I think about China right now, um, I think about a really significant negative in the real estate sector. And I think about a really significant positive signal in the electric vehicle space, mm, right? Okay. Real estate right. is collapsing. We can't sort of put lipstick on the pig. They've got massive overcapacity there. It's going to be painful as they work through that. Um, but this too shall pass, right? By 2025, 2026, they'll be through the worst of this property correction. The electric vehicle story, I think what that speaks to is China's longer term potential. China's economic miracle from 1980 till today, it's not been based on real estate. It's been, moved, it's been based on moving up the value chain right. from textiles to toys to leadership in high-speed trains, sustainable energy, and now electric vehicles. Um, and it's that story which, if it's sustained, means that China's economic miracle, while yeah. not what it was, is also not over. But to, to clear the market, and let's assume, they, you know, as they've done before, they just write mm -hmm. off, refund... Where's the money come from to, to bail out the property market? Do they just print renminbi? Is it that simple? So um, I think there's a couple of things to say here, uh, Tom. The first is that uh, China is a high-saving society with yeah. a closed financial system. Um, and what that means is that the banks are almost always really well-funded. Um, think about the Lehman collapse in 2008, where money fled from the big banks in the United States, that's just not going to happen 
in China. Um, so that sort of funding crisis issue isn't going to be an issue for Beijing. Um, now, clearing the market, getting rid of the bad investments, getting rid of the bankrupt property developers, that's the process which China is in right now. Um, and yes, it's extraordinarily yeah. painful. If you're holding an Evergrande bond, you've lost a lot of money. If you're waiting for a Chinese property developer to finish building your house, you could be waiting a pretty long time. Um, but at the end of that process, China's going to have an economy with less moral hazard, less dependency on building houses right. which no one is going to live in, and more opportunity for folks like the electric vehicle okay, well, makers to drive okay. growth. He sounds like he's, you know, he sounds or like, I mean, he's got this down cold. But what's the timeline on that workout? On a Hayekian basis, they got to clear the market. Is it like an Orlick one year, or is it a four year, or is it a perfect date to a party Congress? It's always nice to time things to these moments in the political calendar, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so look, um, this is kind of an art rather than a science. The Chinese data is not perfect. There's lots of uncertainties there. Um, but by our estimate, two years ago, uh, China was building um, about 20-30% more property each year than it needed to live in each year. Yeah. Um, now, we're about halfway through that correction. Um, what that suggests to me is there's about two years more pain okay. in China's property sector. Tom Orlick, never enough time. Thank you so much. I learned a lot there. Informative yep. on China as well. Look for his wonderful book out there. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Joining us now, we say good morning to all of you on economics, finance, investment, and also the correlations, the linkage of all this, and no one's better at it than Andrew Sheets of Morgan Stanley joins us uh, uh, as we discuss the linkages of the market. Andrew, I saw a stock bond correlation that was wacko. It was like the needle pegged and that it was an odd and strange time. How odd and how strange is this time? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Tom. It's it's great to be here with you. You know, look, the, as I think you've discussed in this program, the, the stock bond correlation has moved around a lot during history. There, there's a lot of evidence uh, you know, certainly kind of prior to the 1990s where, where stock and bond prices uh, moved together, i.e. lower yields were generally better for stocks. Uh, and then, you know, more recently, it's it's been the other way around where, where stocks have, have generally preferred higher yields. And, you know, I do think a good way to frame that is is previously the markets were, were more worried about inflation and, and obviously both bonds and, and stocks like lower inflation. And more recently, we've worried about growth. So I, I do think the performance this week was was fascinating, right? If you look at Wednesday, where, where you saw this big drawdown in, in equities with the Fed kind right. of pushing back on March, I mean, yields fell, 
you know, when that happened. So this this wasn't, you know, oh, no, the Fed's not cutting. Rates are not going to be low enough to support stocks. That right. was not the message of the bond market. And I think it was much more about concern around around growth, concern that maybe the Fed right. was ignoring some of the weaker data earlier this week. So I think we've seen some stronger data. Right. I think ultimately that will be the better path for markets. Paul, I can't emphasize enough what Andrew Sheets said there, how important it is in that the financial media, I'm as guilty of this, Paul's not guilty of this, Lisa Mateo's <laughs> an angel on this. We're addicted to the parlor game, the yep. Fed, the monetary ballet. And what Mr. Sheets just said there is, uh, hello, uh, the real economy, maybe the new burgeoning productivity as well. Absolutely. Hey, Andrew, as a cross-asset strategist for Morgan Stanley, where do you see the greatest opportunities here? When you sit down with your clients, uh, where do you see the greatest opportunity? Where do you th suggest they focus here across assets? So I, I think, you know, the this is not going to be an easy year. You, you've seen a big run up in prices in November and December. And, and in many cases, those, those prices rapidly move towards targets. Yep. We thought, you know, you get to by the end of the year. But, but I think there are some still some opportunities. You know, we think uh, Japan is an equity market that still has a good cyclical and structural story. Cyclical because the economy remains quite strong. Uh, you have some of the cheapest cost of capital in the world still. And then a good structural story is you still see wow, corporate Japan. reform. A number of the LATAM equity markets are, are relatively inexpensive. You have policy easing cycles. We think some of those uh, could still be relatively attractive. And then it's not nearly as exciting, but you know, in an asset class, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm calling, talking to you here in Europe, you know, European investment grade credit spreads are kind of at the 20 year median, which doesn't seem all that bad considering you've got reasonable growth, you're gonna have easing of ECB policy, a very light supply. And I think that's another yeah. area where uh, investors can eke out some extra return. Can do this on the Bloomberg Professional Service, the equity index in Japan. Yep. In yen, you're up 10 plus percent, double digit return. Nice. If you're in dollars, as I believe I am, uh, <laughs> it's not quite as good, up 7.6%. So you knock 250 beeps off. Hey, Andrew, you know, when Tom and I began our Wall Street careers way back when, <clears throat> Japan was the bomb. You had to be there, you had to work there, you had to have exposure there, you had to have, uh, you know, people there. But man, we haven't heard about Japan in like 30 years, but now, in the last year or so, I'm hearing Warren Buffett, I'm hearing Andrew Sheets of Morgan Stanley, people are talking to me about Japan. Why are we talking about Japan now? So I think it's a fascinating example that you know markets move in, in waves. And I, I do think at, at one level, right, you have Japan as a very interesting part of this global economic story. You know, if, if, if we use the full Goldilocks narrative, you could argue China is, is at risk of being too cold. There's, right. there's not enough inflation. Uh, the U.S. and, and Europe are, are more in the middle. And then Japan is, is hot. Japan is the market that is going to be raising rates on our forecast this year. So, so I think that puts it in an interesting part of the macro narrative. You know, valuations have risen, but they're not particularly extreme. And I right. think that's still a market where we see more corporate efficiency to be squeezed out. And I think you've seen a push at the corporate and government level that's, that's pretty unique and pretty rare. Air, right. uh, that we think can finally change that narrative. Frame out the real yield. Had a wonderful evening last night with Tracy Alloway and 
uh, Joe Weisenthal, yeah, Andrew Sheets, and my first question within their wonderful event was did you go, on did you go downtown. Went downtown. I went wow. Below, I went. You know, Andrew Sheets came on just because he celebrated. <laughs> I went below 57th Street. You know, wow. No one's ever News. no one's ever heard of that. Andrew, the real yield. Frame out the Morgan Stanley view or the Andrew Sheets view on what we do from 1.90 percent. Do you just see a lower real yield? So I think the Morgan Stanley view here is, is quite clear. We do see uh, a lower real yield. And, you know, I think that that will be driven by our, our thinking is that that will be driven by clarity that policy is sufficiently restrictive, that core inflation will continue to come down. And, and again, if we think about, you know, what is one of the more surprising stories over the last six months? You know, a lot of last year was driven by fear of this last mile of inflation. You know, we could get down to three. We could never get down to two. You know, six-month annualized core PCE in the U.S. is 1.9. I mean, we've we've, we've kind of made it. I mean, it will still be choppy, but you, you've come a long way. So I think as the market gets more confident that policy is sufficiently restrictive, it will become more confident that real rates do not need to be this high over a longer period of time. And and I think that's where we think the most kind of value is. So we're, we're, we're estimating real yields being somewhat lower. And then conversely, I think as you move closer to the election, you might get more concern around inflation, longer run inflation expectations. Could you see larger policy shifts there? So if yields were to rise due to political uncertainty, we think that comes through much more, is more likely to come through the inflation expectation side of the yield than the real yield side. Hey, Andrew, just in fixed income last year, I was surprised to see that the best performing fixed income uh, area was high yield. And with all the talk about recession, and it's right around the corner, you got to be worried about it. I was surprised to see high yield do so well. Where do you see opportunities in the fixed income space here in 24? So I, I think that's absolutely right. High yield uh, was a surprisingly strong asset last year and benefited a lot from the surprising strength of the economy. You know, I think, again, if we go back to uh, a lot of investors and, and you know, we certainly uh, fell victim to this somewhat as well, thought that, you know, you were in more of a late cycle market last year or a market that would be uh, more have more growth risks associated with them, even even as our economists expected a soft landing. And so high yield really benefited from from, you know, the economy going down that more uh, a positive middle path of avoiding those recessionary concerns. And then, you know, high yield is a low duration asset. So as, as yield sold off, it benefited. So, you know, that's, I think, uh, one explanation for this, the strength mm -hmm. that we've had. You know, the challenge is yields have, have, have spreads have tightened, yields have come down. So, you know, I think when we look within high yield, we do have to be somewhat more more selective. You know, we do think the loan market where right. spreads have lagged, if, if it's higher for longer, loans can do somewhat better. You also benefit potentially from some refinancing of loans into bonds. And then while it's um, a much more difficult to be kind of strategic about it, you know, triple C credit has really lagged. And so you do have this market on the one hand is seeming to embrace a soft landing narrative, and yet the kind of riskiest, uh, most economically sensitive part of credit has really lagged in right. the U.S. and Europe. And I think that could be hard to su sustain if if the economy really is okay. Andrew Sheets, thank you. It's been too long. With Morgan Stanley in London, just thrilled to have him on. Peter Shears, one of those young guys. He joins us right now. Real holistic uh, view on the market with Academy uh, Securities. Peter, is it a bull market? And by that, I mean... Do you see the exuberance and the silliness that comes always with a bull market? Not quite, I don't think. I, I've been thinking we saw a little bit too much exuberance 
I've been a little bit concerned that we were toppy on the market. And I would have to say some of the data, especially jobs last week, is making me reconsider that. We've seen an uptick in the economic data since the middle of January. Yeah. And I've been in this, you know, slowing economy view, and I'm rethinking that. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe we can really right. bounce and be strong, in which case there's plenty of room for the rest of the market to run. Are we some of the big tech maybe has gone too far. Peter, are we annuitizing cash flows in that the romance here and the rationalization of whatever the PE multiple is, depending on the sector, is that corporate leaders are having persistent day after day, tick after tick cash flows, like say the Apple App Store is just one example. Is that part of our bull market feel? That is definitely part of the bull market feel. And I would have to say, though, one thing that does give me pause for caution, though it could keep running, is when you have a trillion-dollar company gain 20% or $200 yep. billion dollars in market cap on Friday, it really makes you question if markets are efficient or not. Now, maybe we have that stock way underpriced, but that's just a move that struck me as odd. It might be significant that we could get more, but it's certainly odd that we can be mispricing a company by so much collectively. Yeah, that, that was a great Bloomberg uh, piece uh, on Friday, noting that big big move up in market cap, $200 billion. And of course, Mr. Zuckerberg as a big shareholder benefits there. Um, talk to us, um, Peter, just kind of about valuation here. When do I feel like we don't talk about valuation enough. We had this big, big move up in the market in November and December. I don't recall a commensurate increase in earnings per share for the S&P. So I'm wondering, are we stretched here on valuation? You know, I think two things are happening to me when I'm looking at valuation. One seems to be People have now just accepted that big tech can trade at a much higher PE maybe than it did in the past. It felt like last year people wanted to be underweight that. People fought those high PEs. It seems like that fighting's going away, which is a contrarian tells me maybe it's time to be a bit cautious there. And we have gotten away. Like, I liked it in late November when we finally started seeing small tech rally. We saw, not small tech, small caps rally. You saw banks rally. And you really started getting this fixation on valuation. Hey, I can buy these things at lower multiples. These are interesting companies, strong free cash flow. And that discussion dissipated. So I'm waiting for a sign to get back into those because they've underperformed a lot this year. It is what I'm looking at. And the one thing that does strike me somewhere in between is I look at ARKK. So ARK kind of as, you know, yep. weird tech. And that struggled. So people are being a little bit discerning, right? It's not like it was during the peak of COVID where anything with a story was getting bought, this is really a little bit more specific, which gives me some comfort that we're not going to have a major pullback um, and that we have some upside if these other stocks really start catching, you know, a bit again. Are there any sectors out there in the marketplace that maybe screen well for you? Right now, I love the commodity space, commodity, commodity rated stocks. I think we are doing reshoring. There's geopolitical pressure. I think we're finally getting our story together, our act together on sustainable energy in that for the next 10 years, we're going to build out sustainable, but we're also going to build out traditional energy sources. So I think yeah. energy will do great. And for a trade, I like China right now. Well, that's where I wanted to go, Paul. Uh, excuse me, Peter. Um, I, I, I need to go to China with the Admiral Securities Differential, which is a huge board commitment by our American military. The thought of, of Academy Securities on China and on the new projection of the United States to the Pacific Rim. So longer term, nothing is really changing. There is a high degree of friction and there are going to be levels of technology. We will just not share with China. So that 
is not changing, and it's probably going to expand. So I think biotech, chips, all those are going to be at issue with China. We are having the separation. I think everyone wants to figure out a way to work together. It's going to be tricky, though, to figure out where on that chain of technology you're comfortable with and what still appeases China that they want to do business with us. So I think long-term, there's struggles. Short-term, we see it as a potential opportunity, partly because I think while Xi may or may not be a dictator, he does have to cater to his middle class to some degree to remain in power. We saw that when we went from COVID was awful in China. There were some protests, and all of a sudden COVID restrictions were lifted. I think he's going to do something to boost markets and the economy because he cannot afford to have that middle class suffer and maybe rally yeah. against the party. So you're optimistic of action by Beijing when you look at all the resources at Academy Securities? Yes, I think near term he has to do something. It's for his own political party, for his own right. thing in power, and that will propel markets. And right now, China is so right. underinvested, that's the opportunity. Peter Cheer, thank you yep. so much for the Academy Securities. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Many choices today in the headlines. Lisa, where do you start? All right. Starting with the Wall Street Journal, there's been a shift in the retail real estate market. So it's happening in Europe. Now it's starting to happen in New York City. I want to point out a couple of them. You have Prada. They've agreed to buy the building on Fifth Avenue where their nice. store is. The building next door as well for more than $800 million. You have Gucci's parent company. They're paying about $1 billion for a retail space just a few blocks south of that. And then LVMH, they're reportedly in talks to buy that Fifth Avenue retail space that's occupied by Bergdorf. I wonder if they're getting deals yeah. now. I mean, because you know, you just think real estate right. down, uh, commercial real estate it can't be strong here. So maybe they're getting some, some deals here relative to three or four years ago. It could, and I mean, luxury goods, their our right. sales are up, so they have the cash, you know, to do it, and it just makes sense because they're paying so much so, in rent, especially yes, when they right. when they you know on Fifth Avenue. I mean, Paul's the only one that shops over there, but the answer <laughs> is, it's from Fifty Seventh Street ish, yep, sort mm -hmm. of, yep down to Saks Fifth Avenue, right? I mean, yeah. the goal is to get down to Rockefeller Center. And is a basic tone is that's going to have a complete revitalization off of COVID? Yeah, it's, it's supposed to, because what they want to do is is set their mark. You know, they want to know that they're going to be there Forever. 100 years from now. Yeah. As, opposed, <laughs> you know? as opposed to paying rent and doing exactly. all that kind of thing. And yeah, it just keeps going. Well, up I, th and going I think up. it's great. It's a great validation of New York City. It's a great validation yeah. of Midtown Manhattan. Um, and when you and see some of these these serious retailers, you know, investing their capital in Louis Vuitton, I mean, the rumored number <laughs> is they put a hundred million dollars into Tiffany. Yeah, oh, that's a great I mean, renovation. I mean, they, they did, did a complete Amazing. renovation. Oh, yeah, and I think next door is the Nike. Remember the Nike store? Yeah, that was a big store. Where you go, the kids would go yeah. in there and lighten your wallet. Right. I think that's like a Dior store now, 
while they wait to rebuild Dior, something like okay. that. I can't keep yeah. track of it. All right, but, that's good for Fifth Avenue, you know, good for Madison this Avenue. This is way too much right? luxury talk. Mrs. Keys, <laughs> Mrs. Keys, listening this morning. Anytime, Lisa, you're in trouble. Anytime <laughs> you mention Prada, it gets me in trouble. Go. It's good. All right, we're going over to London right now. Uh, a lot more people there opting to rent rather than buy because they don't want to pay Britain's high taxes. Um, a lot of workers on short-term contracts there. They're also working out where they want to live. Some still aren't sure yet. And because of that, we talked about rent rising. Yeah, the, the rent is rising over there, too, in London for a place to live. The average prime rent in London increased 3.5% between December 2022 and December 2023. All right, I've got, this is for Tom Keene. Yes. The living room of a four-bedroom, four-bathroom apartment in London's, London's fashionable <coughs> Chelsea neighborhood, which is where Tom would want to be, mm -hmm. potentially, if not Mayfair, listed with estate agent Chesterton's for $37,900 per week per week that's so, the rent yes that's, that's the, the rent because you don't want to buy over there necessarily right now you maybe want to rent is why is what's happening I, in i'm london. hearing that from a lot of people i don't think it's just london but you know it's it's, it's sort of basically out of control yeah. i mean there's no other way uh, to put it stagger on to our last idea yes super bowl commercials and oh here we go super bowl. mateo's gonna <laughs> yes. be non-stop super bowl <laughs> to what monday of next <laughs> yep. week yep. are you yeah. off monday oh uh, no do you take do you take the super no. bowl off? I, 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 rich are you off monday who, to, who's off yeah, Truman, what a shot. Truman's off. Truman's off. Of yeah, you, you, you booked that in when you thought the Giants would make it. Thanks. <laughs> All right, the second year in a row, the average cost of a 30-second ad spot during the Super Bowl, $7 million, right? But this, a lot of businesses, though, they're tightening up their budgets for marketing, but not for the Super Bowl because nope. Paul knows this is the okay. one time, like, this is the big show. This is where Paul, they get the most eyes. Why? Because... <laughs> Everybody's audience has been fragmented across mm. every single medium, which makes the fact that 100 million people are going to watch an event, any event, which in this case is the Super Bowl, you just can't get it anywhere else and you can't put a price tag right. on that. So not only has CBS sold their spots for about $7 million a spot, but I guarantee you they've got three or four spots in their back pocket that they haven't sold. And somebody's going to come in on Thursday and say, I have to have this for um, right. a new movie's coming out or whatever, $10 million. Do we know, is, is, is crypto big now? Like, remember, it was the dot-com, non-profitable dot-com money spent in their IPO. You know, Paul would go to a lunch, bring in IPO money, and they spend it on a Super Bowl ad. <laughs> and now it was crypto, right? Yeah. Is there like a theme this year? Is like AI? I don't know. I think it's going to be a, a lot of the... Uh, I think There's like seven Apple, Apple, Apple CarPlay Car Car ads. <laughs> Are we in there? <laughs> Yeah, the surveillance. Do we buy a spot for seven million dollars? Yeah, well, I think we. You know, <laughs> I, I talked to Reto, keeper of the Amex. See yep. if we could run that puppy up the. But, so seven million bucks. Yeah, how about that? So I mean, but you're paying a gajillion dollars for the but rights. But you think about so. it, like a lot of people, a lot of it's it's breaking up like some are going to stream like a lot of shows are going to streaming there's marketing and streaming there's marketing and regular you know that where does yep. the money where do you get the most bang for your buck that's what they're looking at I, I i still don't get the streaming model we've really enjoyed watching the spielberg hank's vehicle masters in the air about world war ii it's just yep. out you know you yep. watch it i'm Once going it, into episode three yeah today on the yeah but right paul i still don't get the math what did that thing cost the oh answer is gosh i mean 100 million plus yeah i mean the cinematography and that thing and the and the quality of that production of this uh message there is unbelievable my nine dollars a month yes. or whatever <laughs> is paying for that i don't, I don't know if I you really... told me that was in a movie theater on the upper yes. west side yep. okay. lincoln center yep i'd go over there with with one or two or three people 
I'd pay twenty something dollars yep. for a ticket. Popcorn. Plus popcorn. Be, be, you know, on the way out, I'm spending sixty, sixty-five bucks. Yeah. Oh, easy. they're doing it on nine dollars subscription. I don't get it. I don't get it. So you know, but again, that's the streaming model. Netflix makes plenty of money, plenty of profit. We can see that. Mm-hmm. Everybody else, we have no idea, and we just and we do know they're they're losing money. But when can <clears> they get profitable? This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, bringing you the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.